that willingness to straight talk and to be clear and open and honest with people. And you know, and I don't see that as something that makes you tough. I see that as something that makes you humane, right? I think we owe that to each other, uh, you know, to be open. And you know, so if I'm dealing with a performance issue, nine times out of 10, you know, I'll be the person who has the conversation. You know, I think we owe that to people. Uh, my, my team would say I, I create a safe space that then that allows, you know, hard, you know, difficult conversations and high performance to be driven. And I think because of that, you know, they would say that I tend to get the best out of people. And I love that. I love to be able to commit people, you know, even to a crazy vision or a, you know, something that seems, you know, a bit unattainable, uh, but that we work together and that we can do it. Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders and next level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your hosts, Craig Johns and Ben Gathercole. On this episode of the Active CEO Podcast, we speak with an impressive senior executive who grew up in the US playing a lot of sport, including tennis at university before switching to squash, which she played at an international level. She studied at Nardin Academy, has a BA government business from Colby College, and has completed an MBA management from the Australian Graduate School of Management since moving to Australia. Her impressive resume includes managerial roles for Accenture, IISM Group, the Australian Federal Government Department of Innovation, Industry, Science and Research, and is currently the national leader, public sector and public policy, and a member of the national executive for Deloitte Australia. Now living in Australia, she is an affiliate of Chartered Accountants Australia and New Zealand, plays an active role in local and national charitable foundations, including Cystic Fibrosis Australia, and is a mentor for the Centre for Economic Development of Australia and Institute of Public Administration Australia. I have the privilege to introduce to you a leader with a service mentality that has a bias for action and accountability, Alan Derrick. Alan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Craig. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Sounds like you had a very, very active childhood. <laughs> What was life like growing up in the USA and what did you aspire to be? Yeah, that's that's a great question. So I grew up in Buffalo, New York, and Buffalo, New York is is known for maybe maybe two things, maybe three. Right. Really bad weather um, and a football team, you know, that, that can't win. So, you know, growing up, I really aspired to be a chef. Right. And I was shaped by a love of cooking that I shared with my mother. And growing up, uh, I was, I grew up in a really, I was born in a very Irish part of town, Buffalo, all ethnicities, but really Irish. And I was adopted a couple years, uh, sorry, a couple days after I was born. And I was, you know, adopted into a family as a younger sister and, and, you know, grew up with my parents who never once made that a big deal. Right. Um, you know, one of my first memories was being a really little kid having a conversation with my mother around, you know, my bird mother, which meant, you know, my birth mother and these concepts around what this meant. 
And the reason I was adopted was that after my older sister was born, my mother found out that she had cancer. She had breast cancer. And this is the 70s, right? So, you know, the treatments aren't quite what they are today. And she was told that she couldn't have kids. So they looked to adopt me and I became, you know, what would I say, you know, their kind of miracle child, which is funny. You know, um, my husband loves, you know, he'll tell me how that influenced me. Um, but, you know, my mother was in remission for a long time. And then when I was about five years old, the cancer came back. And despite a whole lot of treatments and in really different experimental treatment, you know, she passed away when I was 11 years old. And it's, you know, at the time, I always knew that this was going to have a profound impact on me. It would shape the way I think, you know, the way I felt, the decisions I made. But of course, as you get older, you know, and you advance in your life and your career, you know, you start to realize, you know, just the impact that that's had on you and your decision making. And I was really fortunate. You know, my mom and I were extremely close. She was my biggest fan. And so I got to spend a lot of time with her when she was dying, which as a kid, that was just spending time with my mother. But, you know, when I look back at that now, you know, that was a really profound time for me. And, you know, that really you know, imprinted on me a couple things, right? And, you know, the first is just this in, 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 you know, a really intense sense of gratitude. You know, so despite anything that was ever going on in our life or her sickness or our situation, you know, my mother was always telling me how grateful I needed to be and keeping my perspective, you know, in, you know, just purely optimistic around the opportunities that I had, you know, and that had a huge influence on me. And even while she was sick, you know, we were always given back. She had a really, a really strong service perspective that she, I feel she really gave to me. So we were always, you know, doing different types of volunteer work and giving back to the community, you know, despite, you know, no matter what was going on with us. Um, you know, my mother, she was funny, right? She was Irish Catholic, had a great sense of humor, even through her sickness. And she was a real straight talker. You know, something would, you know, we'd find out maybe she was a bit more sick and my father would look to cover it up and say, no, things will be okay. You know, and she'd always turn to me and, and just say, it's not good. <laughs> and, you know, that, that, you know, that straight talk, you know, even when it's difficult, uh, you know, uh, a lot of people would explain, you know, me that way. But even, you know, as she was dying, her ability to command a room and have humor, you know, even when things were really tough, and even I, when I could see that that was uncomfortable for other people, you know, that ability to laugh and see your way through, you know, I, I loved that. Um, because, because, you know, she died when I was 11. I think I thought, you know, maybe maybe that's how long you live, right? She was 43 years old. So it gave me this real sense of carpe diem, right? I got to seize the moment. I've always been in a hurry, right? I just have never felt like I have a lot of time. So I'm always going for the next thing, always trying the next thing, you know, always looking for the next role. I have had a lot of, you know, ambition. And for me, you know, I bring it back to that. And I think for me, the other point is, you know, I didn't grow up with with a mother's expectations if that makes sense i grew up with a father's expectations and and my father was a businessman right he he traveled a lot he started his own business and he was really passionate and worked really hard at that you know and i watched that um, and i really learned a lot from that but it also meant later in my career and as i've had a family you know, my decisions and my choices in the path that I've taken, I'm not measuring that against someone. And I wouldn't call that an advantage. In, in, in fact, I'd do anything to have her back. But I do know that that has meant, you know, that I'm making my own choices. And so I, you know, I'm grateful and I respect that too. So had, you know, that 
to experience at such a young age had a profound effect on who you are now and how you have your lead and how you are as a mother and family. Eleven is very young. Mm. And quite often you see children at that age, if they lose a, a parent, they become quite rebellious or, or they blame they blame themselves so or they blame life and, the, mm. and things get tricky did, did you go through that phase or you just just yeah. as you explained before it kind of all just evolved yeah no that's it's interesting and that's why i say you know i've really started to, to understand the impact on you know even my leadership style i didn't go through that and i think a lot of it if you know if i put it down to a couple things one is that outlook that I really feel she gave me, you know, in terms of that positivity, seeing the silver, silver lining and truly being grateful for what I have, no matter what is going on around me. Uh, you know, the, the other bit there, that ability to constantly talk straight to me and tell me what was happening and support me through that, uh, you know, it wasn't unexpected, you know, so we lived through that. And, you know, the day she died, I remember being surrounded by family and friends and cousins. And, you know, that wasn't that wasn't a fun time. But I also remember laughing and having fun and pillow fights with my cousins, you know, that night and through the funeral. And, you know, I really think that, you know, the way that she raised me and those values and just that perspective, you know, meant that I didn't go through that. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to take a just a slight tact here yep. for a little bit. And we're going to go into your sport sure. today. So tennis and squash are two sports that may seem quite similar. However, in fact, they're two very, very different sports that require different skill sets and mindset. What was the biggest differences between the two sports and how did you come to making that switch to squash at the end? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm going to, and I'll take you back a little bit. You know, growing up, I think my mother tried to get me to try everything, and I think she struggled with getting me to a point of liking anything, right? Gym, I'm not built for gymnastics. That didn't work. Ballet didn't work. And finally, she, she got me trying to play soccer. And, you know, I think there was the moment of, oh, we finally found it. You know, I loved soccer, and I played soccer for many, many years, um, and basketball as well. So those were my core, you know, core sports growing up. And, you know, another thing that I, you know, when you look at your habits of behavior, so I'm coming to the end of high school in the U.S., that's when you're starting to have the conversations around college and recruitment and scholarships. And I could have gone that path for soccer and basketball, and I think most people assumed I would do that. And I made a very, I don't know, odd, funny decision, you know, my senior year of high school. I picked up a tennis racket and I just loved it. And I said, I'm going to play tennis. And my coaches, my parents, a lot of people around me were saying, what are you doing? Uh, why would you give this up? What do you think? Well, number one, we need you, uh, but why are you changing tact? And so I trained really hard, played tennis, um, and, and ended up being a walk-on at, at Colby College for tennis. Wow. So I showed up on day one. I was not a recruit. I had no business really being there, but I, I spoke to the coach and said, Hi, hi, my name is Ellen. I want to try out. And that always doesn't always work well. And, and I say, fortunately, you know, I think he had a bit of perspective where, okay, I kind of like that, right? That's different. <laughs> that's gutsy. And I can also see there's something in there, right? There's, there's a bit of drive and ambition and passion. And I can also see you work really hard. And so I made the tennis team. And, and I did have to work hard, right? I was, I was new to the sport. And he was the one then that was, you know, he was also coaching the squash team. I'd never heard of squash. So one day, you know, he got us trying this sport. 
I honestly had never heard of it. And so, you know, I'm, I'm a new tennis player. Um, I'm getting my top spin down and now I've got to, got to learn how to play squash. And for me, it was, I mean, there is a real difference in the skill, right? It's a very, it's hard to switch between the sports. Mm. Uh, and so I learned to do that, but it was more, you know, that, that drive of, I can make this happen, right? The newness and, I, and, and I'm gonna work really hard to do that. And, and I ended up switching from a couple years of tennis and squash to solely playing squash. I loved it that much, you know, and captained the team and, and played nationally at Colby. And it, you know, just one of the best experiences of my life, you know, to grow into that team and then to lead that team, you know, and, and to do that, you know, fairly quickly. And I will tell you, you know, through the four years of playing squash at, at Colby, in captaining it for two years, you know, I was always the first one there. You know, I was always the last one to leave. You know, I was working the hardest, you know, number one, because I loved it and believed in it, you know, but, but I really felt I needed to, right, you know, to excel in it. So one of the things that's already coming through here is most people have a lot of limiting beliefs that prevent them and hold them back from taking that step forward. It seems like the way you were brought up both with your mother and your father the, and the approach that came from that sort of pushed away any sort of limiting type beliefs and it was just like anything's possible mm. let's just go let's do it yeah no i think so and and so there's the yeah you know i come back to the you know the 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 carpe diem the the why not and in fairness in doing this I didn't, it's not that internally I had great confidence in doing it. And so for me, that's where the work comes in. You know, to me it was, uh, you know, I've got to be the first one there. And when I'm off the court, I'm training in the gym, right? I've got to put in the effort, uh, you know, particularly then that pressure to not just perform on the team, but to lead the team, right? It is my job, you know, to, to lead by example in doing that, right? And, you know, I, in doing that a bit and in gradually building a bit of self-belief that, you know, you, you set a goal, you know, you really put in the work, you challenge yourself really hard, you know, you, you actually might just get there. And, you know, at times surprising myself, whew, you know, I, I never thought I'd do that. Um, again, I couldn't even, you know, couldn't even define the sport. Uh, so, so that was fun, you know, and it taught me that you could do that. And it gave me, you know, again, a lot of confidence, yeah, on, on just starting from new and, and making a crazy choice like that. So I'm sure our listeners are sitting here going, oh, she just had a lot of fun at university, <laughs> but I'm sure you were probably just as devoted as um, with your study as you were with your sport. So your, your career has mainly been involved with consulting in the public sector and government policy industries. What inspired you to study and then take up a, a career in this area of expertise? Yeah, so I, I went to university you know, with the decision to study government. And, and the reason I did that, you know, growing up and in high school, I loved history, I loved English, I loved to write. I was, you know, fascinated in the systems of government, how it works, what you can achieve, the outcome you can have, you know, the impact in the world. So for me, it was less around politics and, and political science and really more, you know, that, that deep government. And I'll tell you what, I, I chose that because I knew I loved it. Um, I didn't choose it because I thought it was going to lead to great employment. <laughs> in fact, I was actually very unsure that it would lead to any employment, but I knew I could figure that one out later. And, and I did love that study, right? From American government to, you know, old different, you know, uh, forms of international government as well. And, uh, you know, about halfway through that degree, 
you know, my, my uh, decision-making process was I need to get my grades up. So I threw on, you know, a, a business degree and, and did a double there. And that combination of government and business and, you know, that kind of collaboration of skills. I look back on that now, you know, I chose that because that's what I loved and I was drawn to it and I was fascinated by the study. Uh, you know, I almost looked like I knew what I was doing. Um, I didn't, you know, it was really more, you know, the passion and love of the topic more than anything. So can you share with us what your current role entails and tell us about any special projects that you've achieved with the team that you currently have? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so my role is to lead our national public sector practice at Deloitte and I also lead our public policy function. And that means that I have responsibility for leading the teams in all jurisdictions from federal and all the states and cross sector from health and human services justice and security, education, transport, all, all your uh, public sector sectors in working with our clients, uh, you know, to deliver transformation, right? At the core of what we do, we work with governments to drive reform and transformation and to deliver, you know, an impact and outcomes for citizens, businesses, the communities we work in. So it is, you know, working with those leaders, um, you know, to deliver excellence, right? And to really have a lasting impact. Uh, that public policy function is really looking at what are the core policy issues, you know, of the day and the future that we can have a real impact with, that we can work with government, you know, to really design and shape and have a positive impact, you know, that, that then leads to, you know, future prosperity for Australia. So, you know, when I think of what I studied and my role now, um, it's a bit of nirvana. Um, I, I absolutely love what I do. And when I think of some of the projects and what I am most proud of and, you know, what really gets me jumping out of bed, you know, in the morning, you know, some of the things we do, you know, in the health sector, right, is really, you know, close to my heart, you know, in, in driving great outcomes, you know, for Australians within the system, you know, incredible digital transformation of services, of people's experiences, you know, with particular government services, um, from business transactions to, you know, how we actually, you know, better our life expectancy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, the, what I love about the work that I do, um, and we do incredible transformative work in every sector we do, but I feel particularly grateful that the work that I do and that I lead has a really, you know, kind of, you know, very specific line to impact on people. And, you know, that is extremely important to me and a real driver. I was going to delve into this a bit later, but I think I'm going to bring it forward. <laughs> you talk about working in so many different sectors there. So to me, that means your brain is going to be working overtime. Every conversation, every email, every project is a completely different topic and different set of people. So how do you ensure that you can keep your, your mind relaxed, calm, and be able to deal with such a diverse portfolio? Yeah, that's that's a really great question. And it's something that, you know, as my roles have expanded and I've taken on different roles, 
you know, it's it's a skill and an exercise I've had to adopt, right? I mean, I've, I've been doing this work for a long time, but, you know, driving uh, projects across one or multiple clients, you know, yeah, that, that's different, you know, to the portfolio. So there's a few things, you know, in, in really practically carving out, you know, space and time and how I am scheduling my time. And I've gotten much better in the past few years, even in, in paying attention to and obeying my energy and working with my energy to make sure, you know, that I am number one, you know, maximizing the impact of that, but that I am scheduling, you know, different activities to refresh and rebuild um, and inject energy back in to give more if that makes sense. It's a great approach and yeah. I think people will schedule time whereas they should be scheduling energy. Absolutely. And there's things that I do that you know if you if you looked at my calendar they're they're work. But those are things that are you know incredibly energy giving to me and refreshing and you know things you know time with my clients right there's nothing you know that gives me more energy than really working hand in hand with my clients and I'll never lose that similarly with our teams you know the coaching and developing leaders and seeing them shine you know while that's time in my day you know that is activity that fuels me me like nothing else that means I can do more and that's why I say as my roles have expanded I've gotten much better at working with that so you know even as your capacity expands anyway um, it works <laughs> excellent so we'll go back into energy a little bit later sure. on do you think leaders are born or made that's a great question I do think it's a bit of both uh, but but more than anything I do think leaders are made and you know it can be a product of circumstances it can be circumstances plus training uh, i think it's a combination and i don't think it's the same for everyone um, but i do think you know core to becoming a leader and you know and being a leader is you know a sense of accountability and ownership in becoming that so being born or made, neither one will get you there if you don't have that. And accountability and ownership and then learning over time to have that courage to take the leaps of faith that you need to take to get there. And, you know, that's what I've learned over time. You know, it, it, it takes guts to make these these big moves. And, and not everyone has that, but you have, you, know, you have to find that at some point. So in your role, are you constantly putting strategies in place to help your team become better leaders? Absolutely. And, and I would say that, you know, in addition to my client work, that is a, a large part of my job, you know, from our junior staff right through to, you know, our uh, other senior partners in the firm. You know, it, it is around, yeah, again, helping to find the confidence and courage to take big leaps, right? We, I mean, we don't work in, a, you know, it's not an easy profession, yeah. <laughs> the work that we do. It's, it's really demanding and, you know, and, and it is, you know, it's a really gratifying work, you know, to work with clients and, and to have an impact. Um, it's also really hard, right? There, there, are, there are other ways. So yeah, looking at leadership from, you know, from a client perspective, and, and I do a lot of work in, in helping to build and enrich our, our client leaders and our market leaders, um, but also our, our people leaders as well. Yeah, that's a significant component of my role. 
So people are our greatest assets and I can see that shining through in the way you lead. How would your team describe your leadership style? That's a very good question. So, you know, you mentioned some of the aspects on, you know, accountability and, you know, my team would say that I, I'm certainly hard driving, right? I believe in high performance and I expect that of myself and I expect that of others. They would also tell you, you know, in addition to being hard, hard driving, you know, the flip side is that uh, I can be very soft on people. And, and, you know, I've come to realize that it's, it's actually okay to be both, you know, that, you, you know, simultaneously you can be hard driving and a really caring person. And, and for me, what underpins that is coming back to, you know, that, that willingness to straight talk and to be clear and open and honest with people. And, you know, and I don't see that as something that makes you tough. I see that as something that makes you humane. Right? I think we owe that to each other, uh, you know, to be open. And, you know, so if I'm dealing with a performance issue, nine times out of ten, you know, I'll be the person who has the conversation. You know, I think we owe that to people. Uh, my, my team would say I, I create a safe space that then that allows, you know, hard, you know, difficult conversations and high performance to be driven. And I think because of that, you know, they would say that I tend to get the best out of people. And I love that. I love to be able to commit people, you know, even to a crazy vision or a, you know, something that seems, you know, a bit unattainable, uh, but that we work together and that we can do it, right? And and I kind of enjoy, you know, the the opposing voices that might say, well, maybe maybe we can't, because I'll always say we can, <laughs> um, you know. But bringing people together and and really, you know, I've almost had to come to terms with in a way being inspiring like who am i to say that i'm inspiring and you know but really you know having the accountability to own that and then how do you own that and use that you know to inspire others and to help them inspire themselves you know and other people you know that is how i like to lead it's like high performance and performance is true to your heart and the way and, and it's the backbone to the way you lead and, and how you live your life we know that people when we're in high performance we make a lot of mistakes <laughs> we fail but we fail fast and we yeah. keep going are you comfortable in sharing one of your big lessons that you've learned in your career as a leader oh that's a really good question um let me just think of a great example you know i've learned I have learned an enormous number of lessons and, you know, and it, because I, I have moved fast and I'm constantly going, you know, one of, one of my lessons really is, is being open to, you know, the mistakes, but you know, you mentioned it even in the kickoff, I have a huge bias for action. So it really is kind of picking up and going. Um, I'm thinking of a, a specific, you know, really mistake. Um, and, and I'll tell you what, you're hitting on a bit of my mentality. Um, I mean, believe me, I've had plenty of failures and mistakes and client errors and you got to clean them up. Um, but I tend to also have a no regrets as in, and I, and, and with my team to have that, you know, we all make mistakes and, and you got to move on. It's how you respond. You know, I've had, you know, situations with clients where, you know, in my role, I'm the one often, we, we don't always get it right. And, and, you know, we're perfectionists, right? We're the big four. It's our job to get it right. So it really hurts us when we don't. And, and there can be a whole range of reasons why we don't. You know, it can be expectations, it can be a whole lot of things. 
but I have certainly sat, you know, been the face of, you know, taking taking the meetings and in the punches when and when we don't get it right. And I've really learned over the past, you know, five, six plus years that it is absolutely about how you respond to that. It is not about the mistake and you know we need to understand the mistake we need to learn from it but it really is how we respond and how we step up and how we show up to that mistake and the actions we take and the behaviors that we have you know on the back of that that make the difference right and i think that makes a difference whether it's with our team it certainly makes a difference with our clients you know but but that tends to be you know that's my my approach really Showing up is so, so important. And I see you have a really strong growth mindset. So do you have any learning routines and, and, and what do you love to study or learn most about? Yeah, um, I love to learn everything. In fact, <laughs> um, in my early days of partnership with Deloitte, you know, I, I really did feel quite a bit of imposter syndrome. You know, you read about it, you hear other people talk about it. You know, I had it in, a, in an awful way. And... I mean, so awful. I don't think, and no one else knew, which sometimes makes it worse. And because of that, I was actually trying to overcompensate in just consuming wild amounts of information. And I, you know, I need to know everything. And that experience taught me a lot. I finally reached a point where I thought, just stop reading anything. <laughs> this, this, this is not working. Um, maybe, maybe I've gone too far. I'm stressing myself out. Um, but in terms of, of, you know, core learning, you know, I, at my core, you know, I'm a technology partner who's studied and worked in government almost my entire life. So I love to read books and learn and keep my skills fresh around that. So everything from, you know, inspiring leaders and, you know, biographies and challenging political texts and opinions that don't match mine, you know, from a point of empathy, I'm, I'm always trying to understand and learn other people's perspectives, you know, to, to hone my own perspectives and arguments, you know, but just out of curiosity as well. Right. Um, so core learning, um, you know, those those are my main topics. I always get pulled back to those. Yeah. The people we surround ourselves with have a major influence on how we behave, interact and perceive the world. So who has left the greatest impression and had the most impact on your career and why? Oh, very good. Um, there, there's been a few. And, and I'll tell you, I have been what I would say the beneficiary of, you know, incredible mentors and coaching. And I believe really strongly in the responsibility of, of serving those mentors and coaches and, you know, really coming to understand the two-way relationship there. I, you know, when I think of the people, you know, in, in really critical life-changing moments, uh, my first mentor when I moved to Australia, uh, and, you know, he really taught me how to be a consultant, right? I hadn't been a consultant before. You know, he taught me how to be professional. And I think most importantly, he helped me understand that I have valuable skills and that it was okay. And in fact, my responsibility to, to advocate for those skills and to demonstrate to others that they have value and to be really comfortable in the conversations around that. And, you know, particularly at the time for a young female, I mean, that was, you know, that was an incredible learning experience for me. Now, I worked with him at, at a few different places in my career. And I guess, you know, just one other aspect with him, you know, I, I was working with him the first time I came back to leave uh, from maternity leave. 
And you know, that was a really tricky situation for me and I was very nervous about those conversations. And I remember sitting down to have a coffee to say, you know, even though I told you I'd come back exactly the same human being and nothing would have changed and I'll be full time, I actually want to rethink that. And, you know, he listened to me and said, okay, tell, well, tell me what you want to do. And, and we, he said, I'm not going to tell you. And, and we worked that through. Uh, this is what I'm thinking. And, you know, he looked me in the eye and he said, you know, I'm, uh, I, you know I told him I wanted to do five short days. And he said, you know, I'll tell you, Ellen, um, I'll take six of your hours over 10 of anyone's <laughs> any other day of the week. So, yes, you can do that. Uh, I just go take it and make it work. It's now up to you. I don't want to hear about it. You've got my blessing. Go. And that was it. Just go. And I was so grateful. And of course, my next question was, okay, well, what will that mean? What does that mean for my salary? And I've got childcare. And, and he just said, I'll continue to pay the same. Wow. And, and that was, I will tell you to this day, a life-changing moment for me, you know, particularly for the circumstances I was in with my daughter had that conversation not gone that way, I'm not sure I'd be working today. And so, I, you know, for me, I, I've had incredible advice and mentorship and just unbelievably smart, innovative, caring, generous people that surround me every day at Deloitte. Um, you know, but back in some of those early places in my career, you know, just so fundamental to where I am today. Leading on from that, you, you have two beautiful daughters, one of you just spoke about there. I have, I have a daughter and a son. Sorry, a daughter <laughs> and a son, both teenagers. Yes. My apologies. That's okay. Your daughter has cystic fibrosis. Can you tell us a little bit about her story and, and how you manage your schedule? Obviously, we you've just spoke about what it was like at the beginning, but how mm -hmm. you manage that schedule now so that you, that you are both, one, present yeah. and also giving her the support she needs? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, again, you know, having Kate, so Kate just turned 15 and yes, she has cystic fibrosis and, you know, learning at five and when she was five weeks old that she had CF, you know, that was, that was really challenging, obviously, um, in, in working through that and even consuming that information, one of my first questions was, you know, how do I go back to work? Like, can I work and, and how will I, you know, so it has been a 15 year process of of you know working that through and understanding what it means and being willing to change when i need it to change and you know kate's doing beautifully but but kate has a complex illness and and she does get sick and you know she and my son you know i mean you know they they are what fuel me and and you know everything about kate and her influence on me is what drives everything i do my schedule you know, I finally had to concede a couple years ago that I had to be that person who got up at, you know, 5 a.m. <laughs> and I often wondered, when do you become that? You know, I still was getting up early going to the gym. And, and I started getting up earlier. And, and why I did that was it was allowing me time, yes, to go to the gym, to have some time to myself and to make sure, you know, that, that I could get Kate's treatments ready, that, that she could eat well. And, you know, as Kate's gotten older, when she was little, she was highly compliant and easy. You know, as she's gotten older, as her treatment has changed, I have changed and bent with that. And, and so for me, you know, the biggest thing with my schedule, particularly as it relates to Kate, is, and I do call it courage, it's me, you know, challenging myself and having the courage to continue to shift and change 
when I need it to, to, to accommodate what that needs, you know, what Kate needs and what we need to do to keep her healthy. Being agile is so important, not as only a mother, but also yeah. in, in being a leader in a life. What other impacts has both your children had on you as a person and the way you lead at mm. Deloitte? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, with, with Kate in particular, you know, I had to reframe, you know, what I think of as failure. And as a hard driving person who loves high performance, who doesn't like to slow down, you know, having a daughter with an illness that has no cure, you know, that's something I can't, I can't outrun it. I can't out hit it. You know, even, you know, I can't, uh, I can't out earn it. Right. There's nothing I can do. I mean, there's things I, I try really hard and actually we're getting there. Um, but, you know, I had to accept that, you, you know, in a way I need to respect this illness uh, and, and I can't get arrogant. Uh, and I had to learn that Kate being sick and then, you know, when she's hospitalized or she needs extra help, that's not failure. That's exactly what she needs in that moment in time. And that perspective, while, you know, it took me a while to get there, you know, that really, that helps me at work. You know, it's the same perspective on reframing. Don't, don't see it as failure. Yeah. See it as, you know, opportunity or see it as part of your development or just seeing it as something that we bounce from, right? What is it teaching us? And we go, you know, what are we learning about ourselves? And that, you know, that has had a really profound impact on me. You know, the other thing is... You know, I feel, like I say, you know, I, I studied what I studied and I had no idea that I'd look back and realize that, you know, in a way it makes sense. But I feel intensely grateful at this point in my life and career, you know, that my professional purpose and my personal purpose, you know, in, converge and they converge every day. And how lucky am I, right, to sit here and be able to say that. And I love to share that with the people I work with. And yeah, you know, my story is my story, but helping them find that, right? Um, but, you know, professionally, you know, having that impact, right, across the public sector and with our clients and building teams. And then personally, you know, when, when Kate started to get a bit older, right? You know, she was a baby. We learned how to, you know, take care of her. When she started getting to, you know, five years old, six years old, and I'd, I'd come through the door every day and you've, you've got this, this lovely child looking at you saying like, you know, mom, what did you do today? You know, the, the pressure and the weight of that question for me coming from Kate, you know, really weighed on me. And it was, you know, if that answer it better be damn good. You know, I better be doing something that's worth it. I better be having an impact. I better be changing the world in my own way. Because if I'm not, what am I doing? And, you know, I've come to see my purpose, you know, particularly for her, is showing her, you know, that working hard and driving hard and looking to the next thing and challenging myself and putting in the work, you know, that it is worth it. You know, that it's exciting and it's worth it and there's a reason you do it. And, and that's because every day that's what we ask her to do, right? Her treatment plan is gigantic, right? We are asking her every day to keep going and try and be hopeful and go for the next thing. Well, if I'm not modeling that as her mother, I don't know. I don't know who can. So, you know, to see that and then the work that we do, you know, that often intersects from a health, from a human services point of view. I mean, I, I am so grateful for that. 
you exuberate a lot of energy and we talked about energy management a little bit early on but we all know that we have an we don't have an unlimited source of energy and so it's important to both free the mind and recharge the battery so to speak what is the one thing that allows you to reset your body and your mind so you can deliver your a game every day yeah there's a few things and maybe it will surprise you that i am i'm an introvert and you know we come back to energy and so for me you know a lot of my work is a lot of talking and presenting and you know i need to step back and i need quiet and if i don't get that on a regular basis i will i will feel my energy drain and i actually feel like it took me a bit too long in my career to understand that wholly and now that i do i really again scheduling my time but then looking at making sure that i have that time and it is always time alone but sometimes it is time alone and just to you know to reflect and think and just be still the other thing i pair with that is simply joy right and again looking at those things that bring you joy and and while my daughter is you know the the thing that inspires you know my every move and my ambition you know my son you know he's candy coated sunshine to me <laughs> and so he's he's my vessel of joy and you know I, I realized early in in my partnership i had stopped driving him to school for some reason and i realized that was hurting my energy he is he's like a labrador he's full of positivity and energy and you know spending time with him you know really that refuel has actually become on my dot point list of how you refuel you know he's a part of that so so talking about that time on your own so can you just um unpack that a little sure. bit more is it going for a walk in nature yeah. is it sitting down with a book by the lake Yeah. What is that for you? Absolutely. It can be a few things. So I I still love to exercise and I do like to be outside. So it is yes, walks in nature. Um and that can be with someone or alone. I am um, you know, I'm trying to get better and I've started to do yoga, you know, to calm my mind. Sometimes it is simply just being alone. right that just the simple act of even scheduling my work travel to make sure that I'm actually alone uh you know has you know is really helpful to me in just restoring sometimes the hour to hour energy you know and then those things you do to really restore you know the the energy bank so closeness to nature i love australia and beaches but you know given where i grew up i'm a bit more um you know rocky mountain high so i do love hiking and walks in nature and bushwalking and and i like to do a lot of that so we all know smart people have great answers <laughs> but the best people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time? Well, recently, and and I've been challenging myself, you know, with with the learning mindset to do new things. So, a few things. I have I have started yoga. That's not very exciting and I'm terrible at it, but it has required, you know, in intense concentration um and mindfulness and thinking to do it. Um one other thing I did and you know, a couple weeks ago, we were having, you know, a, one of our a big partner meeting within Deloitte and and I was kindly given the topic to present on, which was what does a good leader look like? 
and and I was able to do whatever I wanted with that partner story, uh, you know, have some fun and be innovative. And and I chose to bring my daughter Kate with me, Beautiful. and and I've never done that before. And and to be clear, I am I'm open about Kate, and I talk about her when that makes sense, right? Um, you know, that's not all the time. And, and the people I work with, I do a lot of fundraising. We're really active, you know, in fundraising for cystic fibrosis. So everyone knows about Kate. They know the happy, inspiring story. You know, they know the story that brings in the money, just like the good answers parallel. But, you know, confronting for me, and to be honest, everyone in the room was having, you know, Kate up on stage with me and really talking about not just CF, right? I mean, I painted the picture on that of what Kate really, really lives with. But the session was around, okay, so, so we know that. How do you really seize opportunity from challenge? And how do you keep your perspective, you know, when, when things are truly hard? And if you, and say as a business, if we lived in a scenario, as Kate does, where almost year to year, your best scenario is that you, don't get worse that much. You know, there's there's really almost no getting better. It's just how much worse, you know, do we keep you from getting? If that was your scenario, what would your strategy be? What would your growth mindset be? What would be the choices that you made? And how would you walk through this world? And how would you carry yourself? And I got Kate up to talk that through and I interviewed her. And, and then, you know, we were able to showcase some of the incredible advocacy work that Kate has done, you know, even since she was four years old, but very recently uh, with the approval of some groundbreaking cystic, cystic fibrosis drugs. And Kate got to be the, the face of the nation with, with the prime minister and the health minister, and she gave a speech with them, um, you know, into, you know, to profile that, you know, to those partners. And, and let's be clear, the work that we do the work that we do is important, and it's important to this country, and it's important to the clients that we work with. Uh, but for her to stand there and take them through that with that perspective, I will tell you that you know I've never done that before, and and it was incredible. And you know, proud is not even the word, but I was woefully naive to the impact that was going to have on other people. The humbling aspect. And the humbling, the inspired, and and why I say it was not naive is, you know, that's a story I live every day. And, uh, you know, I almost was um, apologetic to just how impactful it was. But, you know, it, it, it really hit the mark. And her and I, while, you know, we, we do a lot of things, you know, we talk to doctors, we talk to the medical students, we talk together about CF all the time in the experience. But we've never stood up there on a stage like that, influencing a whole lot of really senior business leaders. And it was superb. It was, I will tell you, one of the best days of my life. And she took it so seriously and was prepared and she was terrified as anyone who gets on those stages are. Uh, but yeah, it was magnificent. Yeah, I was so glad I did it. What is the one question you'd love to solve? I have a lot of questions I'd love to solve. You know, overall, you know, I'd, I'd really love to, you know, I, maybe it's me as a consultant, but I'd love to crack the nut you know, on what we truly need to do collectively, you know, from an Australian perspective, global perspective, you know, in ensuring our sustainability, you know, in our prosperity. And, and that sounds like a really big question, 
but I'm a really practical person, right? I, I get things done. And, and I really mean, what do we need to do? You know, what is the collaboration and ecosystems and choices that we need to make in order to do that? And, and knowing, are we bold enough and do we have the courage and the will to really do that? I would, I would love to solve that. Now, I'd love to know what the cure to, to CF is, um, but hey, I live that question every day. You know, the bigger question for me, you know, again, really is, you know, the how do we make that happen? You know, from someone who, you know, loves action, I don't want to talk about it anymore. You know, I want to be able to do it and know the answer. Oh, I love that approach. How do you know you're in a peak state of mind? Well, you know, we hear the concept of, of flow. You know, I've spent a lot of time thinking, what does my flow look like? When I feel peak state of mind, you know, I'm feeling energy and positive and focused, and I can bring those together for impact. And, and again, that can come in any scenario, but, but that's how I know. That's when I have to, you know, I feel it and I know it. You know, I can wake up in the morning and know that it's there. And, you know, and I've tried, you know, over time working better at, you know, flicking the levers to, to get it back, right? Uh, but that's how I know. I can see you've had a profound effect on, on a lot of people. So how can people learn more about what you do? And if people want to connect with you, what's the best way to do that? Sure. Well, I love to connect with people. I honestly love to share my story uh, because, you know, I, I like I say, I, you know, my real ambition is, is building other leaders. So anyone is welcome to connect with me. I think LinkedIn's probably the easiest. And Ellen Derrick at Deloitte, you will find me. You are welcome to reach out. And we'll, we'll put those in the show notes as well. It's been an as, absolute pr- Pleasure speaking with you today, Alan. I really, really enjoyed your approach to life, um, getting an understanding of what has happened from when you're a very young child and how that has positioned you to being a really, really effective leader to the way you care so much about your family and how can they become better every single day. And I'm sure your whole team is inspired by the way you approach life, the, the action you take, the decisions you make, and the way you bring people together. Um, I think a lot of people can learn from your ability to find that energy because we know it's, an, it's not an unlimited resource. And so I think that's, that a lot of people can take, should be able to take those take-homes away and implement them into the way they live their life, especially CEOs and leaders. That it's so easy to keep working hard and next, next, next. But if we're not taking a step back to recharge, our performance is going to drop off over time. So thank you very, very much for sharing your courage, your wisdom, your belief, and your amazing story with the Active CEO listeners today. Excellent. Thank you so much. Today's Active CEO wellness tip is better place. Our role as a leader is to leave what we are looking after in a better place. Stewardship, how we add to the legacy of what has been built before us and what we will give to allow it to continue blossoming in the future. We are here to serve and ensure everyone is brought along in that journey and that 
internal motivations are utilized to galvanize the legacy. That was a phenomenal interview with Alan Derrick from Deloitte. Just an amazing, amazing story where she started off, she had an interesting childhood where she learned very quickly as an adopted child that she was going to have to deal with her mother um, dealing, coping with cancer. And obviously, that at that pivotal point in her, her life, around 11 years old, when her mother passed away, she didn't kind of fall off like a lot of kids do. No, she, I think that learnings from both her mum and her dad provide a very stable platform to, for her to know where her direction was and how she was going to move forward in life. She put a lot of focus and time into her sport and then obviously her university studies and you could just see and feel that passion and dedication for being better and performing at a higher level in everything she does. She made that move very early to Australia and has been very successful in a number of managerial and also consulting roles. And it just kind of made me feel like, wow, I'd love to go and join her and her team because she's just an incredible leader that really gets it. One, you've got to drive and deliver performance every single day. So you've got to be challenging yourself. You've got to be stepping up and going, what's next? What's the next level? But also at the same time, having that real care factor and understanding for both herself and ensuring that she has the energy and the time for her family and recharging, as well as having that, that real focus on her team to ensure that they become better people and better leaders. She answered some very tricky questions with some super, super answers. And I love the fact that she's, she looked at that global perspective of how can we collaborate and work together in a space where the, the world can be a lot more sustainable in the future. A fascinating question. And then she talked about flow and how she has actually thought about how can I get into that peak mindset more often and I think that's important because we're not there and it doesn't just happen by chance. That takes a lot of practice and preparation so you can deliver that peak state of mind and a greater performance for both yourself and the team around you. This is the active CEO where the ordinary don't belong. Join the active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.